Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. Thank you for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. Head over to the Broadway Drumming 101 YouTube page where you'll find unedited conversations that I've had with some of your favorite musicians. On the YouTube page, you're going to find bonus content that I don't feature on my Instagram page or here on the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and click on that little bell at the top so that you'll be notified when a new video is uploaded. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more. Being the chairholder for a couple different shows at this point, what did what did you look for when hiring subs to sub for you? Ah, that's good. Well, it depends on the show. Every show is different. And um, for the producers, we'll talk about the producers specifically. That show was so specific as far as what you played and how you played it that as the chairholder on that show, I needed to know that a drummer could come in and do exactly what I was doing. That would have that level of attention to detail and was unflappable because that conductor was also very particular as far as, well, that when you hit that dance kick, that has to be on that symbol or you have to play it not on the bell of the ride, but right next to the bell of the ride. You know, it was that kind of specifics on that book. So I needed to know, and actually that's, that's maybe where Sean McDaniel started subbing for it. It might've been that show because I knew Sean had that level of detail. He would come in and do exactly what I was doing. He would look, watch everything. He would notate it however he needed to notate it and come in there and replicate it. And that was the only way you were going to survive as a sub on that show. We also went through a lot of drums subs on that show. Because some people came in and, on, and tried to play that book and didn't, was like, yeah, yeah, I know you said that it needs to be exactly, but, you know, I do my thing. I'm going to come in and do my thing. And they'd come in and do their thing, and I'd get a call at intermission, saying, what'd you do sending this drummer in, you know, who doesn't play like you? <laughs> so that was a really, really high pressure. And it was like, you, you had to know the music so well that your eyes were on the conductor at all times because there were slight tempo fluctuations that the dancers needed. Like this eight bars was gonna be at quarter note equals 120, but the next eight bars was quarter note equals 126. And then the next eight bars were quarter note equals 118. And you had to be able to do that. It wasn't just like you're sitting down and you're playing a recording session and there's a click track and you're just gonna lock into that one tempo. You are constantly doing this the whole show. So you had to be on the conductor. And if you weren't on the conductor and right with them, almost anticipating what they were doing, you were gone. So there's those kind of shows. You got that bus ticket. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be the theme. (laughs) Yeah. Don't look, don't, don't be the person that gets the bus ticket to Port Authority. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) But then there are other shows that are more laid back. And that it's more about uh, listening and 
settling into the groove of the show. You know, like we play, let's see, what's a show that I can think of? Million Dollar Quartet. Million, that's a great one. Great one, Clayton. That you had to be able to, to walk into that and sit down and lock in with those other five musicians. There were just six musicians in that show. We were all on stage. The actors were playing their instruments. You had to get on stage and be a band. And there was no conductor. You were basically the, the de facto conductor as the drummer because you were expected to know all the tempos and to, and to lay it down. But you also had to lock in with the rest of the band. So you had a, an upright bassist, you know, doing the slap thing and, um, and three guitarists and a pianist playing all those great old tunes, those Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis, and Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash tunes. You had to be a band member suddenly. So there are really varying degrees of what is going to be expected of you at every show. And that was another tough one to find subs for because you had to memorize the whole book because you were on stage, you were in costume. Um, you had a couple of lines you had to say because you were also one of the actors on stage. You were the drummer in that, in that show, in the, in the Sun Records studio session. And so you had a few lines. You were expected to interact with the other people on stage. Um, it was, that was another hard, hard chair to fill as far as finding subs who were, who were open to that. Cause a lot of Broadway cats are just, they just want to go into the orchestra pit and be invisible and anonymous and play their thing and then go home. But here you had to show up and be in costume and be on stage and have good stage presence and be engaged and remember your lines and say them when you had to, you know, and all be memorized. So that was an extreme, we're talking extremes here, but that's what you gotta be prepared for if you're gonna try to come to New York and you wanna play on Broadway, you've gotta be able to do all these different things. Good, good one, that was a good, a good show to mention. Man, I'm just fascinated just listening to all this stuff, even though I've, <laughs> I've done all this stuff, but it's, it's so cool to hear somebody's perspective. Yeah. On, on what we do. It's great you're doing this, Clayton. It's gonna it's really good information for everybody. Yes, everybody, you know, if you if you listen to five or six of these podcasts, there's a theme that runs through them. Number one, pay attention to the conductor. Yeah. <laughs> That's number one. Yeah. Number two, uh, you know, be versatile. And and it's I believe it's better to have a wide range of music that that you know, under your belt so you can bring it to the table. Uh, number three, be able to, you know, mimic the person that you're going to be subbing for. And subbing is key to getting to know people in the city. Yep. Number four, you know, getting, being a good person. You got that gig. I forgot what show it was, but meeting the conductor and they just wanted to just talk to you and just, yeah. you know, find out if you're a cool person. They, are, they already know you can play. Yeah. Are you cool to hang out with? I mean, that's, that's generally the themes that are running through this. So it's, Pay attention, folks. Pay also attention. true. So true. Yeah. So the producers ran for a long time. You won 12 Tony Awards. Did you get to play? Did you get to play on the Tony Awards for that show? Not for that show, because they had already won the award right before I took over that show. Mm. Um, but I did get to play on the Tony Awards on many of, of the other shows that I had done. And that's always a blast. Yes, it is. What was the first one yeah. that you did? Oh man. 
my memory is so bad. I remember <laughs> Assassins was one of the first ones we got to play. We got to go in and, and for people who don't know, you do a pre-record for the Tonys um, and for the performance that you're going to do on the show. And I do remember this one very well because it was one of my first um, sessions that was not, it was not necessarily about the music. It was about the time they had, you had, I think it was four minutes or something. You had four minutes to perform your number. And so not only did they have to cut down the music from the show, whatever song they, they chose, but also we had to adjust the tempo slightly of that song to make it right in that four minute thing. And this was a show that I did with Paul Gemignani. And I always tell this story because it was so incredible to me. But we did, you know, like the first run through, the first rehearsal um, of, of the song in the studio with the, with the band and everything. And it came out to like four, four minutes and two seconds or something, you know, and they came in, uh, yeah, Paul, it's got to be, you know, we got to shave off two seconds. And so he's like, he's like, okay. And musically, we couldn't do it in a way that would make sense. You know, he had to adjust it for the tempo in his head. And so he sat there for a second, you know, and then we did the next take and it was exactly four minutes. Wow. The next day. Yeah. That's, that's the level of musicianship that you're going to run into in, in the Broadway pits. It's, it's incredible. It's mind blowing. Well, speaking of that, recording cast albums. Yeah. What was your first one that you did? Oh, you know, it was, I think it was Into the Woods, another Gemignani show. I was not the percussionist on that show, but they added a percussionist for the recording session. And I, I'm pretty sure that was the first one I did. That was maybe around 2000 or so. I'm pretty sure that was the first one. Before that, I had done a lot of concept albums a lot of new shows, when they're developing a new show, they will want to record either all the music or some of it to use it to pitch the show to investors to further develop the show and, and to actually fund a production of the show. And because I was meeting so many musicians at all the different pits that I was playing in, I was getting introduced to a lot of composers who wrote show music. And I'd get called to play demos, demo sessions for a lot of, a lot of shows. And a lot of them never saw the light of day. And then a lot of them did come through and got financed and funded and produced. But the first Broadway one, I'm pretty sure was Into the Woods. That was great. It was thrilling. Sondheim was there. Oh, wow. Oh, it was heavy, heavy. Yeah. Yeah, The level of musicianship is very, very high. In, in these pits and I get to meet some of my heroes that I remember listening to on records from back in the yeah. 70s and 80s but when you're doing a cast recording you don't have a lot of time well, I don't think you really have any time to do like retakes or, or uh, take no. twos you just no. gotta get it right the first time exactly and the pressure is on just like the pressure is on when you're doing a show the pressure yeah. is on when you're doing a recording but this is going to be there forever Exactly. So it's even more, it's more heightened because you're putting it down for, like you said, forever. It's permanent record. Yes. You know? 
it's go it's for the posterity of that show right and you better you better not make a mistake because <laughs> if you do it's probably going to end up on the record yes so have you and that, <laughs> that's awful <laughs> have you listened to something that you've done you're like man mm, i wish i could have done that again or you were you pretty happy with what you've recorded so far well Funny you asked ask that. I'm overall I'm typically very happy with the stuff that I recorded. There's nothing out there that I did that I that I was like, oh, I wish I would have done that differently. But I did learn a very important lesson that first Tony Award session, and we because Geminiani was so incredible, we got done with our session early, and we had like an extra twenty minutes or something, and we did this last this last um the take uh of the last section of the song involves a really intricate snare drum thing that's supposed to be locking up with the woodwinds and it was just really messy when we went when we put it down the first time like not everybody could quite hear each other the woodwinds were skiing it you know for like the it was the second time they had played it it, it just wasn't quite laying right and i said to Gemignani, i said hey since we got time what do you think i if I just try to get that snare drum thing, I think I can get with the, where the woodwinds are a little better. Like I was at that point, I was trying to fit in with them rather than have them fit in with me for that section. And he said, I don't think you're going to get it any better than that, you know, but if you want to go ahead. And so he basically walked out of the session of the studio and said to the guy, Larry wants to do another pass on that, you know, let him do it. And so they played the, the playback of what we just recorded and I listened to it and I went in and did one more pass of the snare drum thing. And, um, I went out there and I said, okay, I think it's, I think it's great. And Gemignani said to me, you're never going to hear that on a TV speaker anyway. You know what? <laughs> you don't need to worry about that. This is where the Tony Awards. Most people are going to be listening on a little speaker on their TV. They're not going to hear your snare drum part. You know, he was kind of laughing at me and kind of, you know, ribbing me a little bit. And I was like, no, it's going to be great. And so then when the Tonys aired later that month, you couldn't even hear that there was a snare drum. On. <laughs> you know, he was totally right. A hundred percent right. I learned a very important lesson then. Like sometimes you're sweating over something that isn't going to make a difference in the, in the big picture. You know, you still got to show up and do your thing, but there's always a point where you go, okay, that's going to be fine. That's going to be, you know, that's going to work for that thing. Let's not make anybody stress about it. So that was an interesting lesson that day. Have you ever sat out in the, uh, the audience and watched the show with somebody else playing your, you know, subbing for you? Yeah, almost. That's a great question. Almost every show I do, I will try to do that if I can. Just because, um, for what we're talking about here, it's very different when you're sitting there in the pit and you're making everything happen, as opposed to when you're out in the audience and it's part of a whole, there's part of this, it's a big picture, really, you know, a big painting and everybody's got their little bits and parts and you might be sweating on something in, in the pit so hard every night. Um, that in the big picture, it's not really that important. And it, that doing that, and especially I did it at Miss Saigon because I started subbing at Miss Saigon so much that I really wanted to know what was going on with the show. So I went and saw that show several times from the house 
I just bought a cheap ticket and stood in the back, you know, in the standing room or whatever, and listened and watched the show so that I could understand how it all fit together. I think it's a really important thing to do. And anybody who really cares about their show will most likely try to do that at some point. It can be difficult financially because it's hard to give up a gig, you know, and buy a ticket to your own show. <laughs> yeah, but people, they, they don't give us free tickets, even that's though we're right. a show. <laughs> that, there's no, no free tickets in Broadway, man. Yeah, it's very true. But I do like to do that as much as I can. Yeah. yeah, and it's it it may I do it for every show that I'm in. Of course, I couldn't do it for Lady Day at Emerson's Bar and Grill, but right. I saw it on HBO. Man, and I started crying at the end. I'm like, oh my gosh, she's gonna die. <laughs> yes. That was incredible. You guys were swinging, man. That was such a great. That was such a great show. Oh, I'm glad I came to see that show. That's the other thing that that I do is I try to go and see all the yes, other shows. Do yes, you do. You know, I really like not only to support. My, of our friends in the industry, but to see what's going on out there so that you right. can have a better perspective of what you're bringing to your own show or when you're subbing or whatever. It's, it's, that is, it's a great thing to do for pretty much anything. Like for instance, I still do some club dates when, you know, club dates started back up again. Yeah. And if you don't know what's happening in pop music now, and they, you know, they want to, play a song and then you don't know how that goes because you're not paying attention you know you, it, it it will matter because if you do know what's happening like if somebody says oh, are we going to play WAP by by Cardi B and you're like okay yeah. what is what is exactly. that yeah. Yeah, you got to know. yeah so not only making yourself familiar with what's going on around you in the pop world but in Broadway you should know what's going on with other shows because you'll see uh, you know, just to just to be aware of what what, what your colleagues are doing. Like, I went to go see um, Moulin Rouge recently. I went to see yeah. your show. Yeah. Uh, f- forgot the other shows that I saw, but it 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 kind of opens your eyes to, uh, you know, just what's going on and and what kind of things people are doing. Absolutely, you got to have a clue what's going on around you in the world. You know, if you're going to bring something to your show, you've got to have a perspective. You and I were working in uh, theaters right next to one another. I was working at Memphis and you were at Million Dollar Quartet. <laughs> I don't know if you know. No, no. It wasn't at. Was it next to ours? Were you guys no, next to no, us? No, not that one. Um, let's see. But we were the same year. That was the same year. Memphis. Yes, it was the same year. Memphis I guess you weren't. At Million Dollar Quartet, yeah. Uh-huh. You weren't next. To, what theater were you in? I can't remember. We were in the Nederlander. A couple blocks down from you guys. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, Forty First Street. Yes. But we we saw each other all the time because when when your show is in the same season as another show, or when shows are in the same season, you do all the same stuff together. And I think yes. we had the same producer, so we did um, a lot of promotional stuff together. Yeah, I remember. I met, remember meeting everybody at your show. Like, I made friends with a lot of the people at your show because we saw each other so often. We were always doing the same promo things or concerts or whatever. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, especially during Tony season. Which yeah, is of probably another topic yeah. I should probably talk about. Yeah, but it's it's rare that you if you're fortunate to be part of a show that's nominated for the Tonys. It's such a rewarding and exciting time. Yeah. But you know, and exhausting. Exactly. 
because you're constantly doing stuff. <laughs> yeah, you can't constantly take off. You got to right. do all this promotion and recordings and then do the Tony Awards, which is exciting. Yeah. But man, it, it does take a lot out. Yeah. We should probably talk about that so people know. I mean, have you talked about the lock-in period that exists? I have not. Let's shows. talk about that. That's, yeah. that's a good point. So yeah. tell everybody what the lock-in period is and why that's important. Yeah. Well, when you're starting a brand new show, um, and especially for us drummers who may be involved from the first rehearsal with the dancers, um, you are required to be there essentially from that first rehearsal all the way through, through opening. And they can ask you to stay opening of the show on Broadway and they can ask you to stay locked in even longer. If you guys get, if the show gets nominated for Tony awards, because they know all the Tony voters are going to come to the show and they don't necessarily want people subbing out really important, you know, chairs in the orchestra, like the lead trumpet or the drummer or the conductor while all the Tony voters are coming to decide, you know, whether you're going to win the Tony or not. So that period can, can last. Um, I think the longest one I did was four months where you have to show up and play every show, every rehearsal, you are technically locked in. It's a, it's a union rule. It's in our contract. You're not allowed to take off. And like, it's it's brutal because you may be playing dance rehearsals all day for eight hours and then you do a show that night for another three hours so you can be playing 12 hour days easy and then you have a two show day and you get one day off where you basically sleep and fall into a pile somewhere you know and try to recover but it's really really hard and it's it's expected of us as drummers to be able to do that and people gotta gotta know about that kind of commitment that you're gonna have so you're not gonna see your family a whole lot it's kind of a rough a rough time to get through and you do that for every show every show for the remount of ain't too proud we rehearsed for um, i can't remember two or three weeks and doing those uh 10 to 6 30 rehearsals yeah. Six days a week. Yep. Then we start doing rehearsals. And like you said, as a drummer, you're there for the rehearsals. It's usually you and the pianist. Yep. Then you're rehearsing from 10 to 6, and then they do a show at night. It, it does get exhausting. Look, we love our job. Yeah. It's one of the greatest jobs I've ever had. But it's work. Yeah. It yep. is really work. Yeah. And you have to learn how to, you know, work on your endurance so that you can make it playing those marathon days and marathon weeks. You do that six days a week. Yes. No, you, in order to have something to give on that last show, that last day, you have to pace yourself. You have to learn how to physically pace yourself and have the stamina to get through that. It's It's another thing that I haven't really talked about is pacing yourself. Look, if you have a show that is, looks pretty stable, like come from away or ain't too proud. You can't go in there blasting away every night you right. have to make sure that you play at a certain volume and a certain and a certain with a certain amount of technique so that you don't hurt your hands these things are the things that are going to keep you employed yep. so i find myself searching for the right instrument to use in other words whether whether it's the right head whether it's the right snare or the right stick 
because yeah. if I'm using six that are too heavy, it's like, man, it's, it starts to wear you down. So yeah. it's important to understand that I want to be in this for the long haul. So you have to find the right way to uh, make sure that you are eating right, that you're getting a lot of rest, that you're getting exercise because your body is part of your instrument, but yeah. also the tools that you use have to be proper in order for you to make sure that you make the right sounds. So that supports the dancers and that supports the, the, on, on, the orchestra, but also helps you get from January of 2021 to December of 2021. Exactly. It's so important. And I think I, not a lot of people talk about that kind of stuff, especially about the equipment side of things where the instruments and implements that you choose do have an effect on what you are physically able to do or what, what you are physically putting out. And like you said, if you're using, you know, you bring in your two B's drumsticks in there and you're, you know, bashing away, like you were playing, you know, a, a session for one day and then you weren't going to do it again. You're never going to make it doing eight shows a week, 300, you know, 65 days a year. It's crazy. You have, you have to learn about how to use your body efficiently uh, because it is a very physical thing that we are doing um, and to use the equipment that's going to be best suited for your gig. Well, speaking of that, I played a gig Saturday night after my show. I went down to the cutting room, played a, it was uh, a fun gig, yeah. but I, I, I used the drum set that was there and they had this 22 inch Zildjian. I forgot what it was, but it was so thick. Yeah. And I was playing all these, these instruments. I was like, Oh my God, I can't wait to get back to my pit. <laughs> Because I'm playing these Yamaha drums that, that you endorse, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the Maple Absolute Hybrid. Yeah, they're beautiful. They're just, oh my God, they're just so easy to play. And it makes yeah. you appreciate what you have. But yes, you have yeah. to find the right equipment that's going to help you make the sounds that you want to make, but also make it easier for, for you to do that. That's why those, I was introduced to those Yamaha drums when I was looking for drums to get for Ain't Too Proud. I asked around. I was like, okay, they're going to give me anything I want. Nice. And uh, Joe Horshevsky said, get these Yamaha drums. Yeah. Yeah, they're great. That's what I've got to come from away to. Yes. Now you have the, do you have the red ones? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they're beautiful. They're just so easy to play. It's so easy to produce a great tone on those drums. That's one of the things I love about them. And they're so consistent, which is very important when you're playing a Broadway show because all your stuff is close mic'd. You do once, you know, you do one sound check at the beginning of the run, basically, and you're good for the rest of the run. You know, they will do line checks every night, but they are expecting you to produce that same sound that you did at sound check that at that 9am sound check that one day that you get for the whole orchestra to play. Oh my God. That's so true. <laughs> yeah. You get that one, you get that usually a three hour session and that's it, man. You're living with that. So it better be something good that you've got in there and, and something that can be consistent from night to night. We have temperature and humidity fluctuations in the theater like crazy. These are old buildings over a hundred years old. Most of them that are drafty and <laughs> dusty and moldy and have, you know, sometimes you can physically feel a wind you know, whistling by in the theater, it's all going to affect the sound and you've got to have superior instruments that you know is going to 
they're going to be able to recreate that consistent sound from night to night. It really is important. So moving forward from Million Dollar Quartet, what was the yeah. next thing you did after that? Okay, let's see. Million Dollar Quartet. That was too then I did. Then I did How to Succeed in Business. That's when I took over that book and How to Succeed in Business, which was a blast because that was, you know, big band show with swing tunes and dance numbers, dancers. I love that. Um, yeah, after that. Was Assassins and the Producers after Million Dollar Quartet? Those were before. Okay. Yeah. So Million Dollar Quartet was, that was when Memphis was out. So that was. 2010, I think, right? Is yeah, that right? 2010, yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then How to Succeed was 2011 into 2012, I think. That sounds right. And then, oh, and then I did a, uh, I, I went back to subbing around for a few months, and then I did a show called A Christmas Story, which was based on that TV movie. Oh, which is, wow. Which is how I met Ian Eisendrath. Uh, who is my music supervisor for Come From Away. So, and that's another thing we can talk about is who you know and how you meet them and it will define your career path, you know? And it can go one, it can go many ways. It can go like you meet, you meet somebody, you have a great working relationship and you will continue to work with them then, you know, on and off for years. Or you will meet somebody and realize you guys don't work well together for whatever reason. And that will, and then you won't work with them anymore, <laughs> you know, but, um, Ian and I, we loved working together on a Christmas story. It was a great show only ran for two months because it was a seasonal show. Um, but it was a, a great time. And that was a big band, another big band swing, uh, show, lots of production numbers. So we had a lot of fun on that, but but meeting him there, then he and I have worked together several times since then because I love working with him. And I will do that. I will, if I love working with a supervisor or a particular contractor, I, when they call me and they have a gig for me, I will usually put a lot of weight into that and, and when, when I'm deciding to say yes or no to a certain gig. Um, and a lot of it is knowing that like I know Ian and I know he's going to hire great musicians. It's going to be a great project. If he's involved with it, it's going to be a fun time. Um, and so I will, will be able to base decisions based on that. So it was, it was great that I met him then because it's led to a lot of other really fun projects that we've done together. How did you get come from away? Was it through Ian? Yes. Uh, when he was uh, in Seattle, they were working on the show and doing an out of, what we call an out of town tryout, which happens for most shows these days. They still will go out somewhere outside of New York to try to put the show up on its feet for the first time in front of an audience um, while they're still working on the show a lot. And this is kind of a funny story because he called me and said, Hey, I'm working on this show called Come From Away. Um, we're going to, the producers have said we're coming into Broadway. And I really want you to do it if we, you know, when we come into New York, but I'm going to need you to do an out of town. And I said, okay, well, you know, I don't love going out of town. I was kind of, <laughs> I was like, I can't remember what I was doing at the time, but I was like, I don't know. And I said, what's it about? And he said, well, so it's about nine 11 and I pretty much cut him off. I said, what, what are you talking about? A show about nine 11. How dare you? 
what an off, this is awful. I'm, this is a terrible idea. I'm just like going off. I don't know anything about it. Right. He's like, no, no, you don't get it. I'm, I'm, I'm not explaining it. Right. You know, it's not really about nine 11. So the thing, it's a really great story, you know, and, and I just wasn't having it at the time. And, uh, and he eventually convinced me to come to Seattle to see a performance of it. Like he, he was like, you trust me, you come and see the show. It's going to change your mind. And I was like, okay, I'll, you know, I have one day off and I flew out there on a red eye and f- saw the show said, I'm so sorry. This is a brilliant show. I can't believe that I was such an idiot. I have to do this show. Thank you so much for offering this show to me. I'll do whatever. It was so clearly a brilliant hit to be. Um, and the message of the, this story and everything was just so powerful and wonderful. Um, at that point, I said yes uh, to taking the show. And that's how a lot of, I don't know if you probably have talked about this some too, but there aren't a lot of auditions that happen for drummers to get shows. It's pretty much, you've got to know somebody or somebody's got to know you or know of you to get called for a Broadway chair and, uh, or, or to sub, even to sub. It's a kind of a catch 22. You have to, these people have to know you and have to know you're good, but how do they know you're good until you've played a gig? It's one of those kind of things. And, um, so luckily for me at that point, we had a working relationship and he knew he just, that I would be the right call for that show. Um, that he would just be able to offer me the job like that. Um, have you done some auditions there? I've done a couple times I've had to, to go in and play for a music director who didn't, who didn't know either me or was from out of town and didn't have a particular drummer that they wanted to work with. And so the contractor would call together a, a, short, a small list of uh, players to audition for the music director. I've had to do those a couple times, hmm. but it's very rare. Have you ever had to do that? No, I don't think I yeah. have. Yeah. It's really not the norm. So it doesn't happen very often. So it's a tricky thing. But I tell everybody when they're asking me about, you know, like how do you get hired for a show? You just have to play every gig you possibly can. And eventually someone is going to hear you. Someone's going to play with you and going to recommend you as long as you're doing a good job, which is what Shannon Ford said as well. You've got to bring your A game no matter what the gig is. Mm-hmm. You know, you never know. When I, when I was in Nashville and I got hired for um, that first band, I was playing at a, uh, at a jam session at a club. I played two songs. And somebody heard me mm. and came up to me afterward and said, Hey, I don't know you, you know, what's your name? And I said, yeah, it's Larry. I just moved here. I just moved to town a couple of weeks ago. And that's how I got a, an audition that got me that gig just by playing a couple tunes at a jam session. So you always got to bring your A game. You got to play as many gigs as you can. And then eventually you'll work your way up and, and you know, hopefully, to where people, enough people know you that they will call you and offer you a gig. That's the, that's the goal, at least. I think I asked this to Sean McDaniel. Have you brought in someone to sub for you at any of your shows that has never done a Broadway show before? Yes. And actually, I pride myself on that because when I moved to town, nobody knew me from Adam. 
And I was given a chance by Michael Hinton, you know, an unknown person, not new to the scene. And I was given an opportunity to play. And I've tried to pay that forward ever since. And actually he and I talked about that at one point, um, you know, a couple of years after I had been to town, I said, we were having dinner and I was like, how can I ever thank you for, you know, you opened the door for me. And now I have this whole career uh, for within the Broadway community. How can I ever thank you? And he said, you, you will do the same for somebody else. You will open the door for another young person who came to town who wants to do what you're doing. And I took that to heart and I have, I, I'm so proud to have started so many young musicians in this business. Um, but what I also do is, is I will assess kind of where somebody is. And I also like to mentor young musicians. And if someone approaches me and said, Hey, I want to, you know, like Sean McDaniel, Hey, I want to play on Broadway. I will kind of assess where they are, what they've done. Um, I will coach young players who want to, you know, take coaching sessions with me or whatever, but I will encourage them and feed them gigs that I can that based on their uh, level of experience. And so a lot of young players, I will say, okay, great. You want to play on Broadway, but that means you've got to first play a musical of some sort and you haven't, you haven't played a musical ever in your life. And you just showed up in New York, fresh out of college. And you said, you want to play on Broadway? Well, you've got to play a show somewhere. So I will try to find an opportunity for them to play, whether it's at a community theater, a regional theater, a middle school who needs a drummer for their production of Camelot and they don't have a drummer at their school or whatever. I will feed young players gigs so that they can gain experience. Um, and then I will check in with the music director of that gig or of people who were involved. Hey, how did it go? How did they do? And then continue to feed them other gigs that might help them along their progression. If their goal is Broadway, you know, you, you can't just show up and Warren Oates and I talk about this all the time too. You can't just show up knocking on Broadway's door and, expect to come in there and know what you're doing. You've got to play some music somewhere first. You've got to do some gigs. You got to like, you got to play a wedding gig, you know, or play a bar mitzvah or, you know, a, an Easter Sunday church service, whatever. You've got to have done some stuff before you just show up and, you know, <laughs> I know it's a lot of, a lot of young people want to graduate from high school and do what we do yeah. without having done any of that other thing any of that other stuff. Right. Uh, Sammy Marandino said exactly what you just said. You just don't, you know, graduate and come. It's like, you, you know, you graduate from, from uh, a business school and expect to work at a high powered accounting firm. You just yeah. don't walk in and do that because you have to, there are steps to take. Yeah. Sometimes people call it paying dues, mm -hmm. but it's really gaining experience. Yes. You know, you've got to play somewhere where there's less pressure, uh, it's not as the, the level of musicianship isn't necessarily expected, you know, to be that you're going to come in and ace it and not make a single mistake. You've got to start somewhere. Uh, you know, what do they call it in baseball? The what's minor, like the, minor league? Yeah, the minor leagues, right? You got to do some, you got to get some experience so that when you are asked to come in and sit down and ain't too proud, you know, you're going to be able to bring it. Because you have that confidence and experience behind it. What are some of the things that 
you feel that a drummer should never do in a Broadway pit? Well, man, well, you should never like show up with your dinner and like, you know, pull out a slice of pizza, you know, a can of soda or whatever. Put, put and just like start having, yeah, it'll start like having your dinner, you know. There is somebody who did that to me once. They came, they were just watching the show. They showed up to watch the book, as you do when you're going to learn. You know, they had expressed interest in learning the show. And I said, yeah, sure, come in and you can watch the book and then we can see, you know, what you feel. And they came in and they literally had their a sandwich and they're making all this noise with the wrapping paper, you know, and the, you know, and, and I'm like, dude, you put that, what are you doing? <laughs> You know, we're, this is, there are people out there. People can hear you, you know? Wow. <laughs> so you have to have a, a sense of professionalism and, and decorum. Um, gosh, that's a good question. You don't want to come in and vibe everybody out. You got to be, you got to be a kind and good person. You know, you got to, you got to be nice to be around. You, you got to be pleasant. Uh, you want to be courteous. You want to be respectful of your other musicians that it, especially if you're coming in as a sub, like this is their home. You're, you're being a, you're a guest who's invited into somebody's home when you're a sub at a, at a pit in a, in a Broadway show. And you should be very aware of the vibe of that pit. You know, some pits are quiet and they like to, for everybody to just kind of stay in their lane and do their job, you know, um, and then some pits are kind of more rambunctious and there's more of a, of a, you know, a fiesta kind of attitude where they want you to have fun and, you know, bring a little bit of your own thing, but you've got to know that where what's appropriate for that situation. So you've got to have your, you just got to be really conscientious and aware of the situation you're walking into and fit in with that. Cause they don't, you know, they don't want, if you're distracting in any way, whether it's with your plan, you're going to play your latest Vinnie Kaliuta lick, you know, in your two bar solo break that the dancers have, you know, and they all get lost on stage because they don't know what the heck you just played. Like, where's the one? And you were like, oh, man, I'm doing my seven over four things. So dig me. Everybody dig me. You know, <laughs> you're not coming back. You know, you got to be aware of the situation you're walking into and defer to that, that vibe that's already been established. That pit is the way it is, and that's how they want it to be. You're not going to come in and change it as a sub, you know? That's a good question, man. What piece of advice would you give to anyone interested in playing Broadway musicals? Okay, well, bits of what we've talked about up till now, you know, being as well-rounded as a musician as you possibly can, you know, no matter what instrument you play. But if we're specifically talking about drummers and percussionists, you better have some skills on all those instruments, as many as you possibly can, because that's what's going to enable you to work more. A lot of the books are getting um, more combined as orchestras tend to shrink over the years, unfortunately which puts more pressure on the drummer and the percussionist to be able to have more skills. And that extends beyond just the acoustic instruments that we play as a drummer or percussionist. Electronics are in the scene 
and on most shows. And you better be able to play to, along to a click track like you've been doing it since you were born. Uh, you, you should have some abilities to uh, work with and create drum loops or pro, you know, pro, uh, rhythm programming and that kind of stuff. Sequencing, all that stuff is happening now in many of the Broadway pits. Um, and so you add that all onto hopefully what we've talked about is bringing all these different musical experiences that you've had to the Broadway pit. You know, you, because you played in a wedding band, you've played those bar mitzvahs, you played in a, at an Oktoberfest beer garden with a Polish, with a German polka band, you know, just crazy, crazy stuff. You should do everything you possibly can so that you're informed and experienced if you happen to be called for a Broadway show and they're in the dance rehearsal room and they say, hey, Larry, can you play some sort of polka beat for us? Better, you better know what that is. Or if they say, we want a Dixieland, play a Dixieland shuffle here. You know, what is that? You better know what that is. So it's not just having all your chops together and having all your licks and that kind of stuff. You've got to be able to play all those styles because you're going to be asked for it, you know? Good question. You use Yamaha drums. Oh, yeah. What other? Ever and ever and ever, yeah. <laughs> so if Sonar <laughs> said, look, I got this fantastic drum set. Yeah. I want you to swap it out. Well, you'd say, no, no, I'm good. I would say, no, I'm good. I've had many opportunities from mm -hmm. other drum manufacturers um, to check out their stuff or to switch or all that kind of stuff. And Yamaha makes the best gear, best drum gear. The best hardware they always have they always will their 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 commitment to quality is is unmatched and i've played on all the other stuff too i've had to because sometimes you're doing a rehearsal and they provide a rental kit for you and you've got to come in like you did the other night at that club gig you did you played on whatever house kit was there and you were like oh man this is a drag you were struggling with it because it wasn't the quality that you're used to and for me, Yamaha has that quality. It's got the sound, the variety of different li drum lines that they make. I can always find the sound that I need for whatever particular show. And, you know, like I've, I've come from away now, I've got the um, Absolute Maple Hybrids, which are perfect for that show. But the show before that, I used uh, the Birch, the recording custom drums, because that was the sound that I needed for that show. Or for the Million Dollar Quartet, I used the Tour Custom line because that's the sound I needed for that show. They make something for everybody. And, but it's the quality that will keep me there forever because I know that I can show up and play on those drums. I've come from away, has been running for four years now. That drum is going to sound the way it sounded on day one of that gig. And I know it's not going to, the hardware isn't going to fall apart and break and make me crazy. You know, it's, it's, for me, it's the best quality drum around and hardware. Yeah. So for years, I've been using Zil Zildjian cymbals, but I don't have any endorsements with Yamaha or Zildjian or Remo just yet. But <laughs> a lot of my colleagues are using Sabian. And when I hear people talking about Sabian, I was like, maybe I should rethink this. But you've yeah. used Sabian for a while. Why do you, yeah. why Sabian and not some other company? Well, what Sabian uh, does for me is they make such a large variety 
of symbols that again, I know I can find whatever specifically I need. And I'm such a, a, a sound nerd this way. I'm part of what I bring when someone calls me to play for their show, they're bringing, they're calling me because I have this knowledge of sound of styles of the shows. And they know that I'm going to pick the, the proper equipment to pr produce the proper sound for that show. Like we keep talking about million dollar quartet. It was such a specific sound to that show. Those albums that were recorded back then, um, you know, were recorded with one room microphone for the whole drum set, you know, maybe sitting six feet away from the drums. But the drums and the cymbals that I use, and we're talking Sabian right now, I can go through the Sabian catalog and find exactly the symbol that will be the right sound for that genre of music. And for like Million Dollar Quartet, that was for a vintage kind of sound. They make um, their AAX what was it? The um, AAX line and the HHX line. It's some extra hammering that are done on those symbols that kind of creates um, an aged sound to them. Even though the symbol might be brand new, the sound, it sounds more vintage-y. Uh, and for the show that I'm doing now, um, they're all, because it's so much like a film score and there are all these ethereal sounds and feelings they're trying to evoke from the music, I've got three different ozone symbols um, of, from the Sabian um, HHX line, three different sizes to create different sonic textures and tonalities. So I get really into it with the sounds and Sabian's got everything I, I've ever, I've never run into a problem where I was like, oh, I can't find that sound I need. Um, and they still make things the old fashioned way. They're up in the factory in Canada. There are still symbol artisans who sit there for eight hours a day with a symbol and a hammer on a wooden log and they're hand hammering the symbols. Really? I think they're the wow. only company that still does that because it's, it takes a lot of time. So it takes, you know, it might take hours to create that symbol where the other symbol manufacturers are just punching them out and doing machine hammering. And so they can churn out more products faster. Sabian still puts those um, people hours, those artisan skilled craftspeople into making their instruments, you know, especially the hand hammered line. So I just love that. And, and I hear the difference. And I might have to like give them a call and be like, look, yeah, man, yeah, check them out. Uh, there, a lot of Broadway musicians are using Sabian symbols now, a lot of them, because they found those same things. And the quality is so consistent. You know, they, they don't put out a symbol and it's a lemon. And I have had experiences with the other symbol manufacturers where I was like, this is just a lemon. There's, this is, there's nothing good about the symbol, you know? <laughs> mm. But yeah, Sabian, I've never had, never had that issue with them. So in the past, you've worked with several different artists. Uh, Josh Grobman, Nick Jonas, Melissa Etheridge, Vanessa Williams, yeah. Audra McDonald, Neil Patrick Harris. What kind of things are you working on right now other than the show? Well, what I've started doing over the past few years is um, I've ventured into producing because I, I've fallen in love with the theater so much um, and love it so much that I wanted to be a part of creating it 
in a deeper level. So I've gotten into the, the producing end. I was very lucky to meet some great producers, you know, 20 years ago. It, actually, it was the producers of the producers. That show who I first met and I started talking to them about, you know, how, how do they do this? How do they put together a, a show like this? How do you go about it? How do you go from finding the idea of a show and then, uh, hiring people to write it and raising the money and pro procuring a theater and hiring all the talent. I got fascinated with the whole industry of Broadway and musical theater. So that's what I've been putting a lot of my time and attention into right now. Um, in addition to, I, uh, on the side, I, I contract musicians for other shows. I act as a music coordinator or as a music supervisor. Um, or as a music director, those are mostly for like one-off concerts kind of things, but I've have, have a, a handful of artists that I like to work with a lot and who either tour or they perform their own concert series, you know, here in town, like, um, like Laura Osnes when she did her last, um, run at 54 below, this was back before the pandemic. Um, but I would not only play for her, but contract the rest of the orchestra uh, in tandem with the music director, you know, and coordinate events and shows and concerts like that kind of stuff. I know you said you conducted in the past. Did you conduct yeah. any Broadway shows? Yeah, I did. I've, I've done several. Um, I, uh, the producers, that was the first one that I got to learn. That was a thrill. Um, and then I conducted at, I was actually served as the associate conductor at, uh, what was that? Pal Joey, Pal Joey, and another one called The People in the Picture. And then I conducted at How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. That was with um, Daniel Radcliffe was when he was starring in that show. That was a thrill. I, I just love to do it. And something to, to tell other drummers out there, it's a really good skill to have. And, you know, I basically, kind of followed Gemignani. Paul Gemignani was such a hero of mine back in the day that I aspired, you know, to do that. He, he rose from the drum chair to being Stephen Sondheim's, you know, longtime musical director and conductor. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. And when he and I would talk about it, it just, it made sense because as the drummer, you know, all the tempos already, you know them. So who better than to stand up there, you know, and actually conduct the show when it's needed, when someone's needed to fill in for the main conductor or, and I know many conductors like Gemignani who have gone on kind of left the drums behind to be a conductor full time. I don't think I'm going to do that anymore. I don't think that's my journey anymore, <laughs> especially since the film session world dried up pretty much when I got here, there isn't a lot of that going on anymore, but um, yeah, I've been very fortunate to get to conduct some Broadway shows. It's a thrill and I just love it. It's fascinating, man. I I would never have even thought of conducting, but it's if you're conducting and you've played drums, I mean, you you Dennis Arcano was one of the guests on the show, and he uh, expressed his uh, experience being a, a conductor and what he looks for in a drummer. Yeah, is there something that you look for when you're conducting from the drummer? Yeah, absolutely. That's another great question. I, I look for someone who's going to be following me. 
who is looking, who I can look at them at any moment in time and know I have their attention because I might need to move something just slightly because one of the singers is late for their entrance or, you know, they're going to be, we have to vamp on one measure of music because, you know, the lighting change didn't happen yet or the curtain didn't go up. You know, all these weird things that are happening on stage that you might not know are going on when you're sitting in the orchestra pit. But I need to know that a drummer is right with me so that I can look at them at any moment in time and ask them to help me because this is also something that we talk about all the time in, in the industry is that connection, that relationship between the drummer and the conductor. Because when you're the conductor, you've got no power with that little stick. You can't do anything. But when you're the drummer, you have ultimate power. You can fix anything that goes wrong in an instant, or you can drive that whole bus into the ditch. You have all the power because you are making all that sound and you are usually the loudest and, you know, one of the most important instruments in the orchestra as far as laying the foundation of what everyone else is going to listen to and play to and lock in with, right, as the drummer. So if the conductor doesn't have that drummer right in their back pocket with them, you're screwed. So it's a super important relationship. And it's, it's why we talk a lot about, as drummers, how important it is to be locked in with that conductor. Great question, man. This is good stuff. <laughs> people got to know this. Uh, one last question. Where can people find you on social media, website, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, <laughs> TikTok? <laughs> you a social media I, king or? Yeah, I do. I do a, a bit of it. Yeah. But I'm pretty easy to find if people just, uh, my website is LarryLelly.com and all my social media is just my name. Um, so anybody who, who wants to find me, it can find me <laughs> unfortunately or fortunately, <laughs> but this is so great. You're doing this, man. It really, really, it's, it's important information and you're doing a huge service for young aspiring up and comers because you know, you and I had to learn this the hard way through trial and error and jumping into the deep end of the pool. So this is going to be be so helpful for players who are thinking about doing this for a career um, and can come in with some really good knowledge um, and awareness of what they're getting into. And yes. for some people, it, it'll inform them that they don't want to travel and get into this <laughs> line of business. But it's really wonderful. I'm so glad you're doing it, man. And thanks for having me on. Thank you, Larry Lelly. And we will talk soon. I will see you on the Broadway campus. You're right across the street from me. That's right. <laughs> Thanks. Even though I won't see you when you get out, you're like, you're probably halfway gone by the time. <laughs> I know. It's not fair, is it? No, it's not. <laughs> Thanks, right. man. I'll talk to you soon, Larry. Okay. Thanks, Clayton. If you like what you hear on the show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.substack.com. That's Substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. The Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter is your one-stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. 
When you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll learn about what it takes to be a successful pit musician with content delivered directly to your email inbox two to three times a week. For $5 a month or $50 a year, you'll have a backstage pass to the world of a Broadway drummer playing on a hit show. As a paying subscriber, you'll receive behind-the-scenes access to the life of a musician who makes a living on Broadway. You'll also be able to read every post, not just those occasional free ones. You'll get access to all newsletter issues in the archives and have an ability to participate in subscriber-only comments and events. If you become a founding member for a gift of only $75, you'll receive discounted private drum lessons and a 25% discount on future promotional products. If you'd like to make a direct contribution to the production of this show, you can reach us at Venmo at Clayton-Craddock, Cash App at Syncopated, that's C-I-N-C-O-P-A-T-E-D, or PayPal at Clayton Craddock. Any amount of support will be appreciated. Thank you for listening.